Welcome to episode 5 of Painting the Corners, the Baseball and International Affairs podcast. Before we get started, let me just go over some logistical information. You can access this podcast, and presumably you've accessed it somehow if you're listening, either through my website, www.lincolnmitchell.com, and then on the left, just click Painting the Corners. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher. If you get us on iTunes and Stitcher, please subscribe, and if you like what you hear, please review us. My name is Lincoln Mitchell. If you want to hear more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell. I should warn you that this last week or so, my Twitter feed has been largely dominated. My tweets have been largely about the election in Georgia, uh, which you heard about a couple weeks, and uh, the baseball playoffs. So if you're interested in both those things, it's a good time to follow me. And if not, just bear with me. I'm on Instagram at Lincoln A. Mitchell. My website is www.lincolnmitchell.com. And if you want to email me about the show or anything else, I'm at Lincoln at LincolnMitchell.com. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Big League Baseball is now available for purchase. You can buy it through the publisher. That's Temple University Press. You can also get it through most online booksellers like Amazon or Powell's. I wanted to let you know that I will be doing a book event in New York City where I'm based most of the time at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse. Uh, that's on December 1st at 7 p.m., so if you're interested, please put that on your calendar and check out their site or contact me for more details. Uh, and even if you can't make that, Bergino's is a great store to check out, and they have some extraordinary baseball souvenirs, so I recommend you go. They also have a lot of good uh, baseball book events, even uh, other than mine. I'm also available for book events, interviews, discussions of my book, so if you're interested, please reach out to me. Also, my new analysis of the Georgian election. The Georgian election was October 8th. I have a new analysis of that. It's up on my site on the left-hand column. Look under Georgian analysis, and it's the most recent one. I'm going to take a moment and introduce our guest. Marty Appel is our baseball guest today. And Marty is considered the Yankees' leading historian, leading expert on the New York Yankees. He was the team's uh, PR director, television producer, and is the author of 24 books, including Pinstripe Empire, which is, uh, I think the subtitle is from before the babe to after the boss. And even if you're not a Yankee fan and you want to learn about baseball, the scope of baseball history and you know baseball's signature franchise in many respects, it's a great book. I think if you are a baseball fan and if you're a literary baseball fan, I'm sure you've encountered his books over the years. Marty began his career, career answering Mickey Mantle's fan mail in 1968. That was the last year Mantle was an active player. He then became the youngest PR director in big league history, elevated uh, by George Steinbrenner to that position. Since 1998, he's been the president of Marty Appel Public Relations, which is based in New York City. As I said, he's written 24 books. His newest book is called Casey Stengel, Baseball's Greatest Character, and that's now available for pre-order, and it will be out in the spring, I understand. I think that should be an excellent book. Casey Stengel is an absolutely intriguing baseball figure, and no one writes about the Yankees quite the way Marty does. For information, more information on him... His website is www.appellpr.com, and his spelling of his last name is A-P-P-E-L-L. Our international affairs guest today is John Calvelli. John is the executive vice president of the Wildlife Conservation Society, where he works on government and community affairs. He also was a longtime chief of staff to Congressman Elliot Engel, who served on the International Affairs Committee of the House of Representatives. And interestingly, the Republic of Italy has bestowed the title of knighthood in the order of merit to John for his work on promoting stronger U.S.-Italy relations. We don't really get into that aspect of his work today. John tweets at John Calvelli, that's J-O-H-N-C-A-L-V-E-L-L-I, and the Wildlife Conservation Society is on Twitter at T-H-E-W-C-S. And we talk a lot about the Wildlife Conservation Society and some of the issues 
in which they're involved. So if you're interested in that, you can follow them on, on Twitter. Let me just make another couple comments about this podcast before we get started. You may be asking yourself, what does wildlife conservation have to do with international affairs? The short answer to that question is to listen to John on the podcast and you'll get the answer. A longer answer is that this is an issue that touches on a lot of things that are important to international politics. Criminal justice, how terrorist organizations are funded, the need to cooperate for multilateral cooperation across borders, many other related issues. It's an aspect of our foreign policy that we don't discuss much, but perhaps we should discuss more. We're going to start here on this podcast. I call this episode the Bronx episode of Painting the Corners because Marty has long ties to the Yankees, who obviously play in the Bronx, and John is a Bronx native who works for an organization that is based in the Bronx. Um, As you probably know or may know, the Wildlife Conservation Society runs, among other things, the Bronx Zoo. So please indulge our discussion of that great borough, and if you get hungry because of some of the, the discussions about restaurants and that kind of thing, head up there and get a meal. Lastly, I want to make an apology and a conversation about the Giants. For some reason, I said odd years. They win in odd years when, of course, I meant that they win in even years. Although, as of this recording, that may that streak may be broken soon. Marty and John, thank you for joining us today for this conversation. Um, Marty, let me just begin with talking about a little bit about the Yankees and try to think of them in a in a bigger context. Given the the rule changes and how baseball is structured and how teams have you know now trying to lock down their younger players. And given what the Yankees did late in the second half of this season, do you think they can become a dominant team again as they have you know, various times in much of their, their past history? Um, and if not, how do the Yankees brand themselves uh, going forward for younger fans in particular in this new baseball and, and also media environment? The bigger question really is whether any team can ever be so dominant as to win multiple pennants in a period of years. The Giants actually seem poised to do that now, but it's a remarkably differ, difficult thing to pull off because we're now just at the cusp of an era where every team is rich. It's really never been that way before, and television dollars is, is the reason. But whereas you would get a hot free agent and there were really only five or six teams that could go after him, today all teams could. So the concept of winning multiple pennants, consecutive pennants, seems pretty remote for anyone today. But the Red Sox, for example, and the Giants, although only in odd years, oddly yeah. enough, and the, and the Cardinals, I mean, they, they, no one's going to win five World Series in a row. I think that would be, or even to have the kind of 96 to 2000 run that the Yankees had, uh, I agree, that would be, that seems pretty unlikely. But, you know, this year's, you know, I have a lot of friends who, who will say things like, you know, it's not, they're Yankee fans, and they just, I, some of them have said, second half of 2016 is the most excited I've been about them since 2009, you know, when they won the World right. Series. And, and that's kind of interesting, because this is, this is kind of, that's the kind of thing you might expect from a fan of a team that doesn't get there much, and let's get excited about these kids, rather than let's get excited about the history of, you know, DiMaggio and Mantle, yeah. and this kind of thing. Does this mean that the Yankees, in this environment, how does the Yankee brand change? This is a brand that in American professional sports has been, for better, whether you like him or hate him, you know, meant a certain amount of dominance and... Uh... Well, you've touched on something that's very un-Yankee-like, and that's this look to the future reliance on young talent. But the fact that, led by Gary Sanchez, there mm-hmm. seemed to be so much hope and promise, it was a very different kind of feeling to be a Yankee fan this year. Uh, the first half, we seemed resigned, I say we, being a Yankee mm-hmm. fan at heart, but it just looked like, well, this is what a 500 team is, a team that'll excite you with three wins in a row and then lose four straight. <laughs> and, right. um, we're seeing now, with the onslaught of um, 
fresh young talent and rookie players that give us hope for the future are, is reminiscent of what happened in the mid-90s when Jeter, Posada, Pettit, and Rivera all arrived on the scene at, scene at the same time, uh, augmenting the veterans that were already there, like Jimmy Key and Paul O'Neill. And that hadn't happened since the early 60s, when Bouton, Linz, Pepitone, and Trash all arrived on the scene at the same time, followed by one year by Al Downing. So it seems like once a generation this comes along, and it's it's baseball, and it's exciting for Yankee fans. The power, you know, like the Yankees able to scout and sign these quality players that launched that era. You know, we say that nobody can win five in a row like the Yankees of 49 to 53 did, but they sure, sure came close. They came very close. Right? Yeah, had they not lost that series to Cleveland in 97, they might well have pulled off five straight world championships there. One bounce, ball bouncing the wrong way. Yeah. Uncle Luis Gonzalez's bat was was the difference. Um, well, the, no, actually, it was the Alomar home run off Mariano. Right, that in ninety seven, and then in two thousand, interrupted what oh, you're right. could, have been, worse. could have been six if you count two thousand one, right? Yeah. Right, and that was and and I, I kind of I mean what's what strikes me about the Giants is this even year thing is now I mean my my mother. Um, called me from San Francisco to say they made the playoffs and it's an even year as if it's. We forgot in 1984, 86, those years, and it was even a year, and they finished pretty poorly. But but part of that is that they're not trying to win every year, so that they do have this, they kind of reload, they use that. I mean, it, I don't think it started out being delivered, but certainly by late 2013, you could see they were gearing up for something in the future. So they, they've kind of played it a very different way. Look how lucky they got with Sandoval. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I was actually in, in uh, New England, and someone approached me and asked if the Giants knew. <laughs> that he was such damaged goods. And he, you know, they didn't. And it was a very, you know, and then to flip Duffy for Matt Moore. Yeah. Um, we're, we're recording this on the day before the Mets Giant wildcard playing game. So by the time this goes up, we may be talking about how the Mets broke this streak, or we may be talking about how the Giants are continuing the streak. So we don't know yet. John, I want to bring you in a little bit and, and change the subjects uh, rather rapidly. But you have, you have a background in wildlife conservation, which, which people think of as important work, but not necessarily international affairs. And here we have you on this international affairs podcast. And in my view, the work that you're doing is very involved with international affairs. Could you kind of talk us through sure. why I might see it that way or, or why others should see it that way? Well, first of all, I think um, it's important to just kind of ground where I am. Um, I work for an organization called the Wildlife Conservation Society, and for the New Yorkers that are listening, um, it's the Bronx Zoo. So we run the four zoos in the aquarium in New York. We have about four and a half million visitors. Um, you know, we, we used to compare ourselves to the Yankees in the Bronx, and we could talk a little bit about the, the Bronx connection after between these two powerhouses of the borough. Um, but from the very beginning, we worked globally. Um, we actually, before the zoo even opened, we had sent out teams in 1897 and 1903 to Mexico and to farther regions to uh, research wildlife, because even then, we started seeing the demise and degradation of wild places around the world. Um, you know, fast forward 120 years, and we now work in 60 countries around the world, helping to protect about 50% of the world's biological diversity. So our scientists were seeing very early on these uh, rapid declines right now. It's in the news a lot about wildlife trafficking and elephants and ivory. And uh, we're here on West 57th Street, 
uh, which is the um, actually where there was the largest bust of illegal ivory in New York State history, of illegal wildlife in New York State history, from one store, four and a half million dollars of uh, illegal ivory was seized. Okay. And, and people don't realize that... Um, when did this happen, John? I was with the district attorney last Tuesday. So this is very recent. So yes, this is very recent. And um, I was there with the Department of Environmental Conservation, the Commissioner Commissioner Sagos and uh, Cyrus Vance, where we made the announcement. And people don't realize that there are the four, the largest illegal crimes in the world, some of them you're going to, you know, it's human trafficking, it's, um, it's obviously uh, guns and drugs, and then wildlife trafficking. And wildlife is somewhere around $20 billion of illegal activity every year. And when you look at ivory and rhino horn, you're literally talking about um, these pieces of, of um, you know, one, literally one uh, tusk can be worth up to five, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, and that's uncarved. And then once it's carved, uh, we, we had one piece there that was worth $850,000. So you're talking about huge sums of money, and New York City has been historically one of the hubs. And how do you... So, so there's the kind of enforcing, right, stopping people from smuggling, from selling, and all the points in between. And then there must be other, you know, protecting habitats. There must be, you know, conflicts must have effects on, on wildlife. So one of the people that actually was very involved in this early on was Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and we worked with well, her. What's she I, doing now? Because I hear she's involved. I don't know. I don't see her I much. I she anymore. was running for something. I can't. I've heard that, but it's unclear. She may be interested in some baseball opportunities coming up. I'm not sure. But Maybe she, Commissioner, <laughs> Commissioner Baseball, yeah, something might come up. Um, so when, when Hillary left as Secretary of State, she actually called me and said, really want to stay involved in this issue uh, because she had started to see the connections between wildlife trafficking and criminal syndicates. And our scientists on the ground in Africa had made those connections early on with groups like the Janjaweed. The Janjaweed were the groups in the Darfur. Um, they are men on horsemen that come down and will kill anything to make money. Uh, the Selica Front, which is an offshoot of the Janjaweed. Uh, the Lord's Resistance Army, Joseph Kony, um, they use ivory as a mechanism to fund their activities. And there's been discussions about other groups that have had some involvement. Has Donald Trump suggesting just taking their ivory, like the Iraqi oil? Uh, he's, um, you know, <laughs> he's going to build a wall about Africa. I think that's probably one of the ideas he may have, but I'm not really sure. I haven't really spoken to him. But we actually do have a letter into his transition team so that we can get some sense of how he feels about these issues. So again, you know, you look at these issues and you say there's three ways of looking at it. You need to stop the killing, stop the trafficking, and stop the demand. Um, so on the, on the stop the killing side, we need to educate, train the park rangers on the ground. Every four days, a ranger's killed in Africa. So there's about 100 killed every year that we know of. It's probably a larger number than that. And then on the trafficking side, the, the, the kind of the, the look that Marty gave, which is like, you can't even believe that this is actually an issue. Um, we need to educate people, and we need to actually make the, the punishment fit the crime. So that's one of the things that we've been working on, and we've really been working on closing ivory markets around the United States. We did it in New York in 2014. We did it in California in 15, and in Hawaii in 16. Now, why? Those were the three largest markets in the U.S. And then the last was stop the demand and really educating people to these issues and helping to educate people that this is a really big problem because it's, it's when you're buying a piece of ivory, you're actually helping to destabilize large parts of Africa. The same way people in different 
the fur, for example, wearing fur, you kind of stigmatize that socially and hopefully reduce the demand, right? I think if, you know, the fact is these pieces, many of them are costing thousands of dollars. If you have that kind of money, there are so many other things that you could buy, like, you know, tickets to a Yankee game. So <laughs> maybe not, but... <laughs> So maybe not. You may uh, not be able to afford that. The fur issue was very 20th century. Yes. Um, the pursuit of ivory, that really goes back a long way, doesn't it? So ivory has been part of our kind of uh, ethos as a, as a society from the beginning of time. So you, it's become one of my little pet things. Like I'll go to a museum and I'll try to find items that go back. So if you go to Ostiantica in Rome, they have, uh, which was the old port in Rome, you go there, and there's actually this beautiful mosaic um, in the market of elephants, because that's where you went to get elephants to trade them so that you could have them in the circus, in the Circus Maximus, or, or used in the Colosseum. Uh, anywhere you go, you're going to find elephants in these beautiful elephant ivory tusks that have been carved, etc. Um, unfortunately, what happened is when it's, it's become a situation now, Marty, where you can no longer... Um, uh, the, the the amount of ivory is is it's it's an insatiable demand. You just can't keep up with it. So, for example, in the eighteen eight between eighteen eighty and nineteen twenty, and there was a town in Connecticut. There is a town in Connecticut called Ivoryton. Uh, about ninety percent of the ivory in the U.S. was actually uh, brought into Connecticut. It was then processed there, and then it was shipped to places like the Bronx where there were actually eight piano factories in the Bronx making piano keys, which is why you don't have large numbers of, of elephants in West Africa. So what's happened is you can actually look at the demise of this population. So in 1980, there were 1.2 million elephants. Today, there are less than 400,000. And what we're doing is that population is dropping at about 8% a year. Long and the short of it is we had done some an, an assessments back in 2012, 2013. About 35,000 elephants are killed a year. That's 96 elephants a day. That's one every 15 minutes. So it, it's just an unsustainable uh, number. And therefore, you're, you can see within our lifetime the demise of forest elephants for sure, and shortly after that, savanna elephants. Well, that's a um, cheery topic, but, um, <laughs> but I want to... Maybe bring this to get a little bit. Uh, a big part of this is a communications effort, right? People, you want to kind of change people's perceptions of buying an ivory trinket of some kind, mm -hmm. but also that raise awareness of this. And it's not just elephants. I mean, yep. there are a lot of large mammals that we could be talking about. A lot of other kinds rhinos. of rhinos, like rhinos, um, for example. I mean, I, I read somewhere not that long ago that you know the animals that that people born sixty years from now. Many, many large mammals, they will only be able, they will not exist in the wild, I mean, yeah. at this rate. And that, is, and that is a really change of the human experience, right? We're no longer sharing the planet with giraffes or whatever mm -hmm. kind of animals you could think of. So there's a communications angle. And I want to kind of, Marty, you, you have a strong background in communications, although in, in the kind of sports and baseball world, not the wildlife right. uh, conservation world. But maybe we could talk a little about some of the challenges of, of communications in the sports world today, in the age, in, in the kind of, with the new technologies we have where, I mean, I was, if you, just for example... Uh, if you go back and and read some of the tweets of Chipper Jones, right, the, the you know Hall of Fame, I assume third baseman from the Atlanta Braves, you know it makes Donald Trump seem like a tolerant liberal guy, <laughs> and you know I'm wondering, you know, now, now somebody you always have people who might say the wrong thing, but somebody who might tweet the wrong thing, right, or get in the Twitter fight with the wrong Twitter fight with the wrong person, 
or all of the other ways communication has changed. How do you think, what are, what are the major challenges now facing teams, facing players, leagues? How has it changed in the, in the years you know, that you've been involved? Well, you've kind of hit on it by making each player with a Twitter account his own journalist. Uh, he can make the news as he sees fit. Um, the establishment of the Players' Tribute that Derek Jeter had a role in establishing is a voice for the players to go directly out with their message. Um, and, and do you think, um, do players, here's something I was curious about, do players or hasn't been any thought to, do they get any media training? If, I'm, if I get, make it up to the, you know, in AAA, I make it to the biggest, or maybe it's a high draft pick, does someone talk, talk through this with me? what it means to have a Twitter account, how to use it, uh, how, to, how to talk to the media, how to say, well, I'm just in the best shape of my life, or, you know, I'm just doing whatever Mr. Girardi tells me to do. Or, you know, does, do they get, is that, how the, does that work? The clubs make an effort to media train the players, but you know what happens in sports today that didn't happen when I started in it? Is that the players are millionaires in rapid time. And when you become a millionaire... You sort of uh, do what you want to do. <laughs> You're the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, it's uh, the money gives you power to feel invincible. So that if you want to tweet something, who's going to tell you not to do it? It's uh, you're a millionaire. You're you've got a license to do whatever you want. Um, so Marty, let me ask you a it, question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I just want to say it's a sad development. Mm-hmm. But when I started in baseball. I made almost the same amount of money as the players did. We'd go out to dinner together. They were my age. We were friends. We're still friends today. And the people working in communications today, whether it's the writers or the club PR people, tell you that there is a wall between them and the athletes. They don't fly on the same flights. They don't ever consider saying, let's go out to dinner together. Um... There's a really steep, bar- uh, strong barrier there, and it has to do with the money. Uh, wow, that it's it's really interesting because uh, to me, we see that as well in terms of just money having an outsized role in terms of what we can and cannot do. Sometimes you'll see an issue, but you can't tackle it because the money is going in a different direction, right? Mm. But I, I was just curious as you're as you're talking, you know, relevance, right? And I love baseball, so don't misunderstand the question, right? We face the issue of relevance in people's lives. And how do you stay relevant? You, have, you don't have that issue as much because people just love baseball, right? But one of the concerns I have is in terms of people's time. Have you seen that there's less interest in baseball or the, because of the incredible segmentation in the marketplace that people are, are, are less engaged than they were before? It was like a, a smaller number of people that are very engaged as opposed to kind of the mass engagement that there was, say, in the 50s or 60s. I think it's more localized now, and re- even though we're exposed to more, but there's just so much out there. Yeah. You know, it's 30 teams and 1,000 players. It's just very hard to keep and track 10, of it And 10,000 blocks, right? Right. And it's very hard to keep track of it all so that... You ma- you deal with what you can manage, which is more or less the local team. Mm-hmm. There were, I think, almost 60 Yankee players this year alone. <clears throat> That's hard enough to get your arms around. The I sometimes feel regret for 
today's young fans not knowing baseball history the way I did. <clears throat> I mean, when I was growing up, of course I knew who Tris Speaker was and Lefty Grove and all those guys. Um, but today's kids, <clears throat> they don't know those players. They know today's players. They know them well. Maybe they're in fantasy leagues or something, but they know them well. And yet I came to be forgiving of it, in a sense, because... I had 50 years to catch up with when I was a kid. No, I was... Mm. I was a, it was manageable. Yeah. I was taking a... giving a, two. I have two sons who are big baseball fans. Yeah. And I was giving one a ride home from a game, and it was a carpool. So I had another kid in the car, a teammate, and he said... And he said... They were talking, and my son said, Dad, did you know that this boy, this other boy, can name every World Series winner? And, and he starts on a pick, start yelling out years, and he would do it. And I said, you know, that's, that's great. I said, he said... I said, you know, I could do that too when I was your age, but there was a lot fewer. <laughs> but, but I also wonder whether it's because we get information differently, right? I mean, I, when I was growing up, at, at any birthday or, you know, Hanukkah or something like that, my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, my, you know, my mom, my brother, they, they just knew that they didn't know what else to give me. They always give me a baseball book, right? And there was basically an infinite amount of them out there. And as you, you know, grew up, you could read more serious and more... You know, challenging works, but it was a, it was a comedi- it was a, a body of knowledge and a passion that was communicating the written word, right? And today it's not. Today people don't read the the recap; they look at the video, you know, on their MLB app, and it's and and it's a great app. I mean, I do the same thing, but it's a different way of understanding it that doesn't lend itself quite as much to the history. Um, I once asked on a Facebook question to my Facebook friends. Are you aware on a daily basis of who's leading the league in batting and home runs like you may have once been? Because I know, I used to know every day of the mm-hmm. year who the right. leaders were because it was in the newspaper. And that's when you walk, right. yeah, right. yeah. you get yeah. very little information, so you, and now you remember have, what you could. You sort of have to go to the app, go to the league leaders, segregated by American League and National mm-hmm. League. And I, don't, I do that occasionally. But if you would ask me any day of the year this year, who's the leading hitter in the leagues, I don't think I would have known. And, you know, we're on the, the playoffs begin tonight, right? It's Tuesday. Mm-hmm. One third of the teams have made it to the postseason this year, right? In, in you know, until 1968, well, it was until 1960 60, through 61, it was one out of eight, right? And then it was one out of ten. And then this is a huge number. So I, I think it's, I don't even know that I know who's leading each division. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the year, the way I would have, and that's mm-hmm. not because I'm getting older and don't care about it. It's just because that piece of information is less valuable, right? I also right. wonder, why, yeah, it's it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's a completely different experience now. I'm just curious, though, as you as you, I want to kind of go in a little bit yeah, of a please. different direction, if you don't mind, in terms of just the Bronx, right? So you've got, you know, we're headquartered at the Bronx Zoo. The Yankees have been called the Bronx Zoo on occasion. Uh, we often will call the media and say, "Listen, the real zoo's over here. Leave them alone." Um, we had a television show called The Bronx Zoo. The Bronx is one of those interesting boroughs, and I'm speaking actually at Mercy College in a couple of days about the history of the borough. And uh, for their, I guess, for their for their leadership, just to kind of, you know, what's the next 50 years of the Bronx going to be? And I'm just curious to go back for a second. What what do you see as the impact that the that the Yankees had on making that fateful decision to move to the Bronx? What was the impact of that? I think there was a feeling then that there was going to be a migration of population from Manhattan into the Bronx, and there were going to be well-to-do people that could um, 
represent the affluence of Manhattan and would be moving up there, largely because the subway was moving up there. They wouldn't have built Yankee Stadium at that intersection if there wasn't going to be a subway station mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. So that was critical. For those of us, we do have listeners in other countries, there is still a subway station very close to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yes, yes. There's, there's, more, there's more than one now. Right. It's, it's very <laughs> accessible by subway. But, I mean, the history of New York sports teams is very much dictated by subway stops and by, you know, the ease of getting to the ballpark is very important. For the Yankees, it's a small thing, but ballparks have to face a certain way so that uh, home plate is always there and left-hand pitchers, their left arm is facing south, which is why they're called southpaws. That'll be news to some people Mm -hmm. who are following this. But... um, the fact that the subway stop was by the outfield bleachers at Yankee Stadium meant that people would get off the subway and possibly buy the cheap seats because it was right in front of them instead of walking all the way around the ballpark to where they sold the box and reserve seats. So that sort of worked against the Yankees over the years. If the subway stop had been by home plate, might have been a different economic situation. Crazy little things like that dictate the fates and fortunes of a club. Although if you were, if, if, I mean, as someone who has written, you know, the history of the Yankees, the lack of money was never the big problem, right? I mean, well, I mean, relative to today, if we could laugh at it. But even from a baseball operation, they always yeah. have, you know. Well, the Yankees always, you know, had money, remarkably so. When you really re- dig deeper, take a layer down, Rupert, Jacob Rupert, who was the first successful owner of the Yankees, Throughout the 1920s, his principal source of income from his brewery was gone because of prohibition. And yet he managed to make that team thrive and to pay Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Well, let's just say it was thriving anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He may not have been... been Officially, it was not thriving. But it's important to note, you know, how the dollars were so different then. When I was a kid or even a teenager and could sort of afford my own tickets... The reserve seat was two and a half bucks. The box seats was three fifty. I would never imagine spending three fifty. I just wasn't a box seat kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Two fifty sounded okay. I could do that a few times a year. Three fifty was unthinkable. So we, I mean, this is in my lifetime, and we have to, you know, yeah. turn. I mean, since this is the Bronx episode, yeah. um, I, I do want to. I want to ask you some other questions about the Bronx as well, because it, it's something that's. You know, the, both you represent these kind of enormous, or have worked closely with these enormously influential Bronx institutions. But the baseball story in New York is an interesting one because the Bronx, uh, you know, all three teams were located in neighborhoods that underwent demographic change, and two of those teams left, and and one didn't. And I don't want to get into the whys of that because that's a whole other book, so it can be written about that. But it is it is against it is not consistent with the kind of dominant Yankee narrative. That, that they were the team that stuck it out in the low-income neighborhood as demographics changed, you know, and, and, and their fans more or less kept going. Now, they may have driven in and driven out and told themselves whatever stories on the way in and out, but they did, and, and the Yankees did stay in the Bronx, and that's, that's also significant. What I find interesting about what Marty said is, is kind of a bit of the disconnect of what the Yankees may have thought in 1920 and what the reality ended up being. The Bronx has always been a borough of immigrants, I mean, the if you look at the demographics of the borough, whether they were white or black or yellow or green, one thing they all had in common, most of them were relatively poor. 
and you look at there's one example you know you've got obviously Riverdale and then you've got the Grand Concourse which were these areas of some of some um, um, affluence but even after the depression even the, the those areas there I mean Riverdale's always been a special place but they don't necessarily sometimes they, they don't they're not it's not considered part of the Bronx yes it is part of the Bronx yes. right so um, I look at you know I look at that area yes there have been there's been many books and many conversations about how the Bronx burns but candidly one of the things that saved the Bronx in, in that respect or the, the ability of people to pay 350 was the fact that, for example, Lou Gehrig lived in New Rochelle. I mean, Westchester County is very, very close, and there's a large number of people that are willing to make that drive, and they were making that drive in the 30s and 40s. And, and therefore, the Bronx has been what it has been. It has not changed. I mean, as a matter of fact, the latest census information showed that the Bronx is the most um, diverse county in the country, having beaten out uh, Queens. It used to be Queens. Which right? used to be Queens, right? It used to be so, San Francisco before that. So I apologize for saying all San Franciscans here. But so therefore, to me, I think, you know, the the Bronx has always been what it is. I mean, we clearly went through a bad period. And you can talk about it. Was it rent control? Was it, you know, why did they burn the buildings? And, you know, the Bronx is burning, all that. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. So, I, yeah, they did stick it out. But I also think that New York City did right by the Yankees as well in terms of the amount of money that's been oh, given to rebuild that, that stadium. I, 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 would, <laughs> I, I, would, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. Um, Talk a little about 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 the uh, Wildlife Conservation Society as an institution in the Bronx. I, I'd be curious. I mean, if, if there are many tourists who come to New York, and you know, if they go to two places in the Bronx, it'll be the Bronx Zoo and Yankee Stadium. If they go yeah. third, it'll be Arthur Avenue, right? Yeah. But they, oh, they'll do all three. Or they'll do all three. We don't have anybody here representing. Although you know some good restaurants. There. Um, but. So that so how does the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Bronx Zoo, how does that fit into the kind of? It's very funny. Do you, I'm coming from an event on Arthur Avenue, um, where Arthur, I think about Arthur Avenue a lot and how you can't get there from here because there's no subway that goes there. It would be competitive in my mind with Little Italy yes, if absolutely. you could. So interestingly enough, I was on the original business improvement district for Arthur Avenue, and um, we did some some of the original work on um, kind of economic impact. That area, um, those few blocks, has an economic impact of about $250 million. Um, it is, uh, was just nominated and won from the American Planning Association, one of the five great streets of America. Could we this brief, year. John, could you briefly, because not, yeah. we have many listeners in, not in New York City, which may change after this podcast, but yeah. do you, after this episode, do you want to maybe tell people what Arthur Avenue is? So, you know, I think one know. of the great things about the Bronx um, is that it's really not one place. It's actually 61 distinct communities. I mean, that is the number that's been used about the, the Bronx as a, as a borough. And one of those 61 communities in the Bronx is actually Arthur Avenue. So Arthur Avenue is the Little Italy, quote-unquote, of New York City. So when ethnic communities came in, they would move to specific areas within the city of New York. And one of the areas where Italians moved was Arthur Avenue. Why? They helped build Fordham Road. They helped build. Um, they helped build Fordham University, the New York Botanical Garden, and the Bronx Zoo. So you just had this great boom. And as Marty referenced before, they built the subways. And there was the Third Avenue L that was torn down in 1974. So we actually had an elevated train that literally was at the periphery of uh, of Arthur Avenue of this Little Italy section. And then in some of the great changes that came about, they they decided to tear it down because it was. 
it was an old, it was one of the original elevated trains that had been built in um, to kind of get people out of, of Manhattan. So the Bronx's history has really been the story of emigration. So if you look at the population of the Bronx in 1880, I think it was about 200,000. By 1920, it was 1.2 million. So you had this just incredible expanse in a short amount of time to think that kind of change in one place. And in the middle of that, two major institutions are formed, right? There's many others, but the two that we're, we're here representing, in a sense. The Bronx Zoo opened in 1895, and within a short amount of time, we became one of the major destinations within the city of New York. The, Bur the Bronx Zoo still gets about 2 million visitors uh, a year, and then within, with all the other parks, it's about 4.5 million. And, you know, don't want to speak for the Yankee numbers, but they're pretty good. And Dion and the Belmonts, we can't forget. <laughs> there should be a statue for them on yeah, Arthur yeah. Avenue. They have a street. Dion <laughs> has his own street. He just came back to the neighborhood. So, so you know, you've got these iconic places in the borough. So, and they're all connected. Interestingly enough, right now, if you came up to the Bronx, you'd find these, these tour buses yeah. where people will come up, they'll go to the zoo in the morning, they'll have lunch on Arthur Avenue, and then they'll go see a Yankee game. I mean that's kind of the they perfect don't go to day. The botanic gardens. The, or they'll do the opposite. They'll go to the Yank. They'll go to the botanical gardens. They'll come to Arthur Avenue. Go to the Yankee game. So these are these are the um, the the byways and highways of, of the Bronx. That's kind of the Southern Boulevard. It's, it's interesting to hear this because the other there is the, the other perspective. I was at a baseball recruiting event for college baseball players, and you know a number of baseball many baseball coaches were there, and one of them was the coach from Fordham, and. You know, about over the course of the two days that I was there, various coaches would make presentations just so parents could learn about, you know, different programs and different colleges. And the guy from Fordham, uh, he said, he started by saying, does anyone know who Vince Scully is? I think this was in California or something. Vince Scully? Vince Scully is, and, you know, that he went to Fordham, right? I did. And, and, then, and then I went up to him after, I said, how can you ask about Frankie Frisch? But he, <laughs> but he spent the entire, and Fordham's a good school with a good baseball program, and he spent the entire time trying to, make these parents less scared to send their kids to the Bronx. Like, he, that, that, when he said Fordham in the Bronx, like, that uh, old memory of the Bronx was still in people's kind of uh, minds. Well, but I want to... I blame Paul Newman for that. <laughs> but I wanted to There was a movie called Fort Apache, the yes, Bronx, yes, which was one of the classic, scaring movies of the Bronx. I wanted to just ask one last kind of international affairs question, because I want to get, for those of our listeners who may be less um, interested in the history of the Bronx, um, although I'm, uh, I am, um, you were, you know... The Wildlife Conservation Society is an enormous non-governmental non organization, but it must inter intersect with foreign governments, with our own, our own American governments, with ordinary citizens of foreign countries. How does all that work? What is, how do you try to make that work effectively to get what you need done, done? build those coalitions, et cetera? So it's, it's the, the long and the short is you, you touched on it. I mean, we are a nonprofit organization. Um, we work, we're an international NGO, non-governmental non organization. Um, we are committed to working in partnership with other NGOs at local, the local level and also with governments. So, for example, literally Saturday, we had the environmental minister of Nigeria uh, at the Bronx Zoo. Uh, she went on a tour of the zoo to see some of our exhibits, but really to meet with some of our officials there to talk about a proposed role that's going to be built in Nigeria from, the, uh, from Lagos to Abuja and the impact it's going to have and how do we minimize that impact um, because it was going to be going through a UNESCO designated, a potentially UNESCO designated World Heritage Site. So the zoo becomes one of these places where we can bring people, educate them, see, like I had a delegation from Benin many years ago that came in that we were doing some initial work in West Africa. 
the president and the foreign minister of Congo came to the Bronx to uh, make an announcement about a new national park that they were creating there. So in a sense, the, the zoo is a mechanism for us to tell our story to the world, educate people, because as much as I'm a fan, and, and we all have a smartphone these days, and there's so much that you can learn, being really close to some of these wild animals and being able to have that experience, um, it changes your perception of what, of what it is. But it's an educational experience. We use that as one mechanism to tell our story. But then our scientists, even in the parks, so for example, our chief veterinarian um, is very active in reintroduction of endangered species and extinct species. So for example, there's a, the Kansi spray toad of Tanzania was extinct except at the Bronx Zoo. We literally had him in the reptile house and we were keeping a population alive until we could recreate their habitat back in the wild. So that story, for example, buffalo. You know, there were 30 to 60 million buffalo in the United States we had hunted them down to 21 in Yellowstone National Park. Um, there were about a, another 800 in what are called gentleman herds. We literally, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and William Hornaday, who was our first director, I think everybody knows Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy, they created something called the American Bison Society. They brought these animals to the Bronx Zoo. They bred them at the Bronx Zoo and then released them back into the wild in Oklahoma. And American Express and Wells Fargo literally picked up these animals at the Fordham Station, brought them down to Grand Central, put them on Amex and Wells Fargo trains, and shipped them out to Oklahoma. I mean, this is like, this is the Bronx, right? This is, this is the story of, of this organization. And, you know, fast forward, now we have 3,000 people working in 60 countries trying to save this biological diversity. And I think at times people are like, why should we care? Well, if you care about a large percentage of your drugs that are coming from tropical forests around the world, um, well, then you should care about these tropical forests and the animals. By drugs, you mean medicines. We're talking about international. Yeah, we're talking about most of your cancer medications are coming from uh, discoveries that are made in tropical forests. Those forests exist because of the wildlife that's there and the role that they play as environmental engineers. You don't think of it that way, but gorillas in their area are environmental engineers. They maintain that, that habitat, that ecosystem. Elephants do the same thing. There's many of these species. So by saving that elephant, you're actually helping to save that, that tropical forest, that forest. By saving gorillas, you're doing the same thing and maintaining that harmony within that nature. And our friends across the street at the New York Botanical Garden would tell you that many of these forests are really, uh, they're the treasure troves. And climate change, which is not, I mean, not something we'll talk about yet today, that must be an enormous threat as well that makes you have to recalculate and rethink a lot of these. So what, what's happened is, like, even some of the protected areas that you have around the world may be irrelevant because the species that you're trying to save won't be there anymore. So what, what you're finding is that animals are creating what are called refugia. You know, they, they'll go farther north. So you go to the Andes, and you'll find on that gradient that animals are moving farther up, depending on you know, what, they, what their needs are. Um, so you have to be a little bit more flexible because of climate change. And if we're not, if we're not we could see the extinction, literally, the, you know, they call this the Anthropocene uh, extinction crisis. This is going to be as large, if not larger, than the one when the dinosaurs left. So, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to be negative, but i got to tell you, this is some of the stuff that's going on at the Bronx Zoo. You know, these are some of the issues that we're dealing with at the Wildlife Conservation well, Society. I, I mean, I, it is not... The most upbeat discussion that you're, but no. but it's important and it's it's interesting because these are, you know, people 
often think of climate change as something to do with something abstract. How is or that animals? It's nice. It doesn't matter if they're in the zoo. We can look at them there. It's actually much more complicated than that, yeah. and it requires a coordination between governments and non-governmental organizations within governments that you've described. It's very uh, yeah I, difficult. I, Lincoln, I, I I have to say, you know, and I, we've known each other for years. I mean, I'm a relatively optimistic person, and I think that. Um, you've caught me probably on a day where there's a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> but I will say that the, you know the future's in our hands. I mean, we can make decisions, and I told a story about Buffalo. I didn't tell you the end of that story. The end of that story is we went from 21 in the wild and about 1,000 to now there's over 300,000, and we're really thinking about how do we look at having a million bison back. You know, the story of the Conci spray toad, yeah, we saved them, and now we've reintroduced them excuse me, back into the wild in Tanzania. So there is examples of, of success throughout this process, and you know the, the global community has actually realized, there was a big meeting in Paris recently where the global community said, we need to save these forests because these forests are, you know, harb- you know, maintain the biodiversity, but they're also these incredibly important areas that are sucking, at, sucking in so much carbon, right? The, the carbon right. sequestration. So if we can hold on to these forests, we can actually have significant value, not only for the wildlife there, but for humanity. And I think that's exciting for me because people are starting to see the relevance of these issues and they're starting to say, wait a minute, I can make some changes. You know, like for example, you look at the whole lead certification movement in terms of construction, the ivory movement, you know, the, what we've done, we've created a group called 96 Elephants. We have 200 organizations in 45 states. We've passed legislation to ban the sale of ivory. We've made a real dent. You're starting to see the changes in Africa, uh, and the African countries themselves are taking this on and saying, "You know what? We want to hold on to our own natural heritage." So I, I believe I believe in the power of humanity. I think at the end of the day, there's going to be there. There has already started a change, and it's going to continue. And we can get this right if we do if we do the right do it the right way. And buy an electric car. I don't know. <laughs> I rode my bike here. So. We did the bald eagle right. right. Absolutely, wanted, you wanted to raise that. Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to raise that. Uh, I mean, that's America's bird, you know. Yeah, and, and uh, I remember when it was facing extinction, and now it's not. What did we learn from that effort? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, DDT mm-hmm. plays a very big role, and and we have to look at some of the stuff that we're putting into our own bodies, right? Um, but that we bred those animals, and it's funny you say American symbols. This year, I worked on a piece of legislation to make the bison, the buffalo, the national mammal. So mm-hmm. now we have two symbols for our country, the, the buffalo and the eagle. And um, it was one of those kind of crowning moments for me because I've been working on this for a long, long time. And to get the U.S. Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike. And I will tell you, the most incredible moment for me was um, when I met with Congressman Bill Clay from St. Louis. Right? And I went in, he's on the Committee of Jurisdiction. I said, we're working on this bill, we want to do this, and it's very important to the Native American community because the bison is a symbol of culture and it's also a symbol of hope. You know, how the, the communities came together, government, local communities came together and saved, this buff, saved the buffalo and saved this animal from extinction. It's just a great American story. And I was hoping he would co-sponsor the legislation. He says, I want to carry this bill. I said, you want to carry, he wants to sponsor the bill, he wants to be the author of the legislation in the House. I said, Congressman, I have to ask, why? He said, because um, my grandfather was a Buffalo soldier. And to me, the Buffalo means much more than just a species for Native Americans. It's a symbol of my own heritage. 
And I was like, holy. I mean, that really hit me, you know, that these symbols are important. And, and I think kind of tying a lot of this together, you know, to me, baseball is a symbol of America as well. These are the good things that we have, and these are the things that we should be holding out. And I look at wildlife and say, you know, through the work we did with eagles, or the eagle as a symbol, the buffalo as a symbol, these are great stories that we need to be telling to our kids to the future. Well, thank you. I think that's a good note. I think we, we met, you got to the questions we wanted to ask each other. I think that's a good note on which to wrap up. Um, thank you, both of you, for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as, as I did. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this chat we had with me, Marty, and John. For again, for more from Marty, check out appelpr.com. John tweets at John Cavelli, and I can be reached. Email is Lincoln at LincolnMitchell.com and on Twitter at Lincoln Mitchell.